Welcome listeners to another episode of Listen, Learn and Love hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast, joining me via Zoom from Murray, Utah, which is where I live, coincidentally. Who knows, we may be a block apart. We've never even tried to figure out how close we are, is my friend, Brian Pedersen. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Richard. Thanks for having me. As you know, listeners, I try to give you the 40,000-foot view of the story you're going to hear. This is a unique story. I'm really glad Brian has reached out. He's a regular listener. Um, He's... um, gay. He's in his mid-30s. Grew up in Sandy. As I mentioned, he lives in Murray, Utah. He's a U of U English graduate. Works for the state of Utah. And he's gone from sort of this um, anti-ex-Mormon, burn it all down, pretty angry, to not returning to the church, but but finding his way as a Christian. And um, I just thought this was a terrific and unique story. Um, Not And just probably finding grace and support for other people on their own paths. Recognize that some people find, get angry and at their organized religion and then forever separated from God. And some people kind of deconstruct and reconstruct and maybe come back to their original religion or find a new path forward. And this is a platform we're just trying to support all stories that are respectful of other paths. I don't think Brian is asking anybody to leave the church or to follow his exact path. Just, sharing his story. Is that okay, Brian, for an introduction? Yeah, that sounds great. So um, I'll just turn it over to you to share your story. Great. Well, thanks. Yeah, I hope I hope people will find my story uh, useful in some ways. I know it's kind of different from the typical uh, guests that you have on the show, but I've been listening to a long time for a long time now, and I thought um, I'd come on and, and share my story as well. Uh, and I grew up here in Sandy, Utah. I've got two younger siblings. I've got two younger sisters and my parents. Uh, My parents are still active believing LDS folks, uh, but the rest of us uh, have kind of stepped away from the church. I kind of uh, spearheaded that when I was young, (laughs) being the oldest. (laughs) Around the age of about 10 or 11, I was pretty young, is when I started notice that I wasn't uh, feeling the attraction towards girls that a lot of my friends were feeling. Um, and I had a hard time with this. Uh, I had a lot of internalized homophobia when I was young. There wasn't any kind of specific problems that I can remember encountering with like a bishop or someone in the church. I didn't experience any bullying or no one said anything to me, uh, when I was young that made me feel ostracized, but it kind of just kind of came as a direct result of what I've been taught and what I had been taught. To, to think about the world and what to expect as we get older. You know what I mean? As LDS folks, we know that the whole divine plan is to grow up and get married to a woman and have children and stuff. And it kind of felt like God was taking the snowball of my reality and giving it a good shake. It's like, oh, you think this is how this is going to go down? Well, not quite. Um, but it, it, was, it was a tough time. And as I became a teenager, it got even harder. And I lashed out a lot at my parents uh, and and my family. And a lot of things were said that I regret. And I'm sure there's a lot of things that they said that they regret. I think we've all forgiven each other since then, which is good. And we have a great relationship now. But at the time, it was was not fun. I was quite a little rebel uh, rebel and dyeing my hair black and listening to non-Christian music, you could say. Um, 
And yeah, I stopped going to church when I was about 16, I want to say. Um, and from there on out, it was all just kind of like sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And in my late teenage years and into my 20s, I kind of became the typical anti-Mormon. And I sort of lived my life in direct conflict to all the things that I was raised to believe. Uh, so whatever the church taught we should do, I kind of did the opposite. I was drinking coffee and I was dating guys and I was doing getting into all kinds of trouble and mischief. Um, although, And I know that's, that's the experience of a lot of ex-Christians when they leave their faith. Um, but, but I have a teacher, uh, his name is Alan Watts. He's a Taoist. And it, he said something recently about this particular situation that a lot of folks kind of see this as a form of liberation, um, this sort of lifestyle from the lifestyle that they were living before. Uh, but really, it's not true liberation because you're still kind of living your life according to those doctrines. You're just doing the opposite now Interesting. <laughs> than, than what you were doing before. Uh, but in, in some ways, that can be, in, in a strange way, something that I felt like I had to do when I was young. Um, because when my previous identity was sort of falling apart, I needed something new to hold on to. And for a lot of folks, the gay identity can kind of be that for them. That doesn't necessarily mean sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But taking that on as an identity uh, serves as a kind of life raft to give ourselves meaning, um, particularly when we're young and we're, we're trying to establish who we are in the world uh, and get a sense of ourselves. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of what I did. I, I stopped being Mormon. I thought I'm going to be gay now and I'm going to be the best dang gay that I can be, whatever that happens to mean. And I went off to college. I got a bachelor's degree in English uh, from the University of Utah. Uh, I had a great time there and that was really informative to me. And it really kind of created, I think, who I would sort of be for the rest of my life. It gave me a view of the world that was very secular very rational, kind of based in scientific thinking. You know, the typical stuff that we usually think of, you know, you got religion over here and then you got science over here. And there are these, these opposites that have to always fight with each other over the truth and stuff. Um, so that's kind of the, the worldview that I took on. And that's how I pretty much remained for most of my 20s up until about uh, just about three years ago. Um, when I kind of went through another sort of, I guess, falling apart of my worldview. Uh, we, were, we were talking before the show, and I referred to 2020 as kind of like uh, peak stupidity in, in, in the Western world, it felt like. I think people remember the politics of that time and the pandemic that was going on, and everything just felt like so ridiculous. And I didn't really know how to make sense of it all with the way that I currently thought about things. And so I kind of went on a journey looking for, I guess, a, a more deeper meaning, a, a deeper way to engage with the world because I no longer wanted to have all of my attention focused on politics and the news and, and all that stuff. And even the people, I would say, in my own camp, I didn't like the way that we were acting and we were behaving and it was just, I just couldn't take it anymore. Um, so I looked into like podcasts such as your own, and I started reading the Bible and um, looking into alternative ways of thinking, reading lots of books and stuff. And um, I discovered uh, uh, Christian mysticism and 
uh, spiritual contemplation and mindfulness. And this kind of opened a new door for me to sort of revisit the gospel in a, in a new light uh, and in a way that really contextualized all of my experiences up until this point. Because in my 20s, I kind of felt like I was living in this sort of dualistic world where there was the church and then there was, you know, the anti-church or whatever. And I'm in the anti-church camp now. And I thought this is true and that's not true. Um, but this new worldview kind of made me see that like all of these things are really kind of working to bring us back into relationship with God. If we have the certain perspective to see it that way. And it allowed me to not have to look at, uh, the life that I lived growing up as like an incorrect life or anything, but it really made me appreciate uh, the really invaluable things that I was taught uh, in my youth uh, when I was a kid. Really, the the uh, the structure and the security that it provided me really equipped me with the tools for life um, that I use today, and that's kind of uh, where I'm at. <laughs> um, and I, and I was going to say that uh, what I'm going through now is sort of, it's kind of like a spiritual baptism in a way. Um, I read a lot about mythology. And the thing about baptism, a lot of people don't recognize is it's supposed to kind of simulate drowning in a way. It's a going into the water and it's a kind of death and a rebirth into something new. And I believe this is kind of one of the great spiritual mechanisms that we we obtain higher levels of consciousness and we get closer to God is if we're willing to let a part of ourselves die so that something new can be reborn, uh, there's a lot of benefit to that. So it's kind of hard going through this now with how I've been living in my 20s, because in a way I'm kind of coming out of the closet as a Christian now <laughs> in a weird way. Um, but in a sense, it's easier now because I've kind of gone through this sort of transformation already once before when I was younger and I discovered I was gay and I had to let go of who I previously thought I was at that time. Um, and if you've been through it once, it's a little easier to do it uh, the second time. But I also think the amazing thing about these sort of little rebirths that we experience is that we're never quite returning to the thing that we left, but we're kind of being reborn into something new uh, and something that doesn't discount our previous experience, but allows us to integrate our old experiences into uh, the wholeness of our lives. Um, so it's not really the Christianity that I, I left that I'm returning to, but it's something entirely new. Um, it's a great thing. I'm having I'm having a really good time with it. <laughs> I consider myself at a pretty good spiritual and emotional place right now in my life. Um, I, oh, I wrote down. It, it's kind of like what Jesus says about how you have to have a new wine skin. Uh, you something you can't put new old wine into an old wine skin or something. You need to have a new wine skin, uh, and that new wine skin can hold all of the wine. It can hold the new wine. It can hold the old, the old and the new wine. So that's kind of what I'm trying to, to, to discover right now in my life. And I, what I did is I wrote up a little uh, kind of, I guess, a contemplative manifesto. Cool. Uh, to kind of, because uh, it was like, there were so many thoughts I had in my head, I wanted to organize it in a way so that it was 
somewhat clear. <laughs> um, so if you don't mind, I'll go ahead and, and read that. Please do. Uh, this kind of new worldview that I've got. Let me pull it up here. And so it really kind of centers around the contemplative path. Um, and I think before I get into that, I have to discuss a little bit about how I feel we normally interact uh, with the world as Westerners, as Americans, as products of the Enlightenment, uh, and how this new train of thought that I'm exploring differs from that. Um, so the, the non-contemplative mind, which is the primary mode of nearly all Western thought, will always divide the field of reality into two possible choices. From the mystical perspective, this is referred to as dualism, seeing everything in terms of right and wrong, us and them, gay and straight, Christian and pagan, liberal and conservative, male and female, etc. This mindset that we all engage with places an extreme limitation on reality, creating an exclusionary world of only two options, and the individual is compelled to choose one over the other. Dualism strengthens the ego and provides a sense of security at the expense of nuance, compassion, and wisdom. It favors answers and solutions over mystery and process, teaching people what to believe rather than how to believe, and provides an easy but simplistic way to contextualize the world. The dualistic mind is not inherently bad or evil. To claim that the contemplative mind is right and the dualistic mind is wrong would just be another form of dualism, after all. Much of what we consider to be the law is dualistic. A strong foundation of right and wrong keeps us safe and helps us build a good moral compass for life. By thinking dualistically, we can build a healthy identity and a community that extinguishes us from the external world. Human beings need this framework to navigate life, particularly in the early stages of our spiritual development. I think of um, the story of Adam and Eve and the uh, the, the fruit of good and evil, that they had to partake of this sort of knowledge before they could come into the, to the world. Um, but the gospel doesn't intend for us to stay in this mindset forever. And so many of us mistakenly believe that our salvation comes from the perfection of this stage. As we grow older, we may recognize that rational, dualistic thinking is completely unequipped to deal with subjects such as love, forgiveness, and grace. When observed closely, we see that life is far more complex than the binary will allow. This revelation of consciousness will usually follow a dilemma that simply can't be resolved with our normal mode of thinking. At some point in all our lives, the dualistic perception will fail us in a grand way. This can take many forms. You might look at our two-party political system and refuse to believe that there can be no alternative. You may be a parent who can't understand why you're asked to choose between your LGBT child and your church. You may experience a crisis of faith. You may ask yourself, why do bad things happen to good people? Or what does the Bible mean when it says that the rain falls on the just and unjust alike, or that the last will be first? These questions in biblical scriptures are inherently non-dualistic and can't be explained with regular rational thinking. There are many who will say that some of these questions will only find answers in the hereafter. But if you're like me and you've never found that idea very satisfying, let me provide you an alternative. Uh, 
The contemplative path can provide us with insight if we have the courage to unlearn some of the important lessons of our youth. It's a difficult and lifelong practice, but if we're not willing to let this particular grain of wheat die, we will find ourselves in a kind of arrested development, unable to resolve the central conflicts of our world or mature into higher levels of spiritual consciousness. And that kind of brings us to the contemplative path. Uh, some call it mysticism. Others will call it spiritual mindfulness. And what the contemplative approach is, is an alternative to our relationship with reality and how we interpret our experience. And it's a way of thinking that uh, seeks to transcend the dualistic mind. Uh, so rather than perceiving reality as a field of opposites, the contemplative mind sees things in their wholeness. That's W-H-O-L-E-N-E-S-S. It sets aside judgment and a need to analyze, critique, or categorize the world and simply observes life from a place of wonder, beauty, and inherent goodness. The contemplative is grounded in the truth that all things are created by a God who is singular, good, and has no equal. Therefore, no true opposition exists. All things emanate from God and reflect God's goodness. And we can recognize this inherent goodness if we have, as Christ said, the eyes to see and the ears to hear. The universe is not a battlefield, a place of conflict and exclusion, where good and evil battle for supremacy. The universe has always been a beautiful and harmonious system of interconnectedness. Awakening to this truth is realizing that we have never left the garden. It was here all along. From God's perspective, there is no subject-object relationship. There is, there is no us and them, no LDS community and gay community, no Brian and Richard. There is only the collective we, and that is the body of Christ. We believe the foundation of God's justice is restoration, not retribution. God does not dish out punishment to the unworthy or reward the moral elite for their good behavior. Our relationship with God is not a transaction. There was never any debt to be paid. Rather than demand payment for our sins, God's restorative justice takes the divided and seemingly broken parts of the self and makes it whole. We accept sin and suffering as an essential component of life, something to be forgiven and integrated into the wholeness of our experience. Sin is not something that can be eliminated. It is simply another tool in God's tool belt that he uses to bring us back into relationship with the divine. The contemplative does not seek knowledge in the traditional sense, because life is not a problem to be solved. There is no big question that needs answering. We seek comfort in the unknowability of life and even revel in the divine mystery of God. Knowledge can be a tool to aid us with the primary goal but it is not the goal itself. We strive to live in good relationship with God and all things, and to live in good relationship does not require our comprehension. I'm sure we've all met someone who was very intelligent, who could cite doctrine and scripture with ease, but was not necessarily loving, kind, or forgiving. On the flip side, there are those who seem filled with Christ's compassion and a love for the world, who have never read the Bible or had any formal religious education. The gospel is not an idea that we hold in our mind, but an experience that is lived out. 
this may seem like a bit of a large leap of faith for some, um, but speaking with my own testimony, uh, I've kind of come to this conclusion, not out of a, a blind sort of hope for it to be true, but this is where the experiences of my life have kind of led me. Um, I don't expect a lot of folks to believe everything that I said, but I hope that they'll just kind of sit with the ideas for a bit. And at the least, I hope I've said something that'll make some folks out there feel a little less crazy if you've ever had the same thought. Um, and that was, I feel like that was kind of a mouthful that I just, I just threw at you, Richard. Do you have anything to add to that? Um, that was really thoughtful. Um, <clears throat> I think you picked the right major at the University of Utah, English, on the ability to put really powerful words to the thoughts in your mind. You're a gifted writer from a deep understanding. I underlined several things as Brian spoke, listeners. Um, it sets aside judgment and the need to analyze, critique, and categorize the world and simply observe life from a place of wonder, beauty, and inherent goodness. Wow, that was really thoughtful. The gospel is, this is towards the end, the gospel is not an idea that we hold in our mind, but an experience that is lived. Just really thoughtful, Brian. Um, keep sharing. Well, thanks, yeah. I think uh, when it comes to what you mentioned about, well, what I mentioned, <laughs> about kind of looking at life with a sense of wonder, I think a lot of us Christians are kind of raised with this idea that life is kind of a chore or a sort of test or a work that we're kind of set here to do. Um, but one, of the, one thing that I'm really attracted to is a more Eastern perception of life, which kind of sees things as a kind of divine dance or a sort of play. Uh, not necessarily a play like something you'd go see in a theater, but simply something that you have fun. Um, you know, Jesus said, you know, be like under the little children. And when I look at little kids, you know, they're not so concerned with um, their identity or their moral worthiness and stuff. They're just kind of building castles in the sand and they're just having a good time. Uh, so I think it, 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 it's really good to sort of approach life with that kind of perspective. Um, you reach a point where, I, I don't know, we focus so much on our own individual moral perfection, it can almost kind of become self-centered. And when we forget to have a good time and we forget that, you know, uh, what did Joseph Smith say? Men are that they should find joy. You know, we're, we're here to have a good time. Um, but just kind of building off of that. I wanted to kind of go over a few kind of central ideas that I've learned and kind of tie them back to my own experience uh, as well. And the first one, this comes from my number one man, uh, Richard Rohr. He's a Franciscan priest uh, who's written a lot about the gospel. He has a, a center in New Mexico, like a spiritual center there that he runs, and he's written lots of books. And um, one of his central ideas uh, that he talks about is this notion of original goodness over original sin. Um, we kind of start the world, we kind of start off in the world with a kind of pessimistic view of life and of nature. Um, we, we go back to the Adam and Eve story and, you know, their, um, their sin that kind of led to a sort of fallen state of humanity. And it kind of paints our perception of the world as like an inherently uh, a sinful place, I guess. 
So we look at the world as kind of contrary to the divine. We look at nature as contrary to God. Um, but what he posits is that it's kind of the opposite. Um, and he uses the example of in Genesis uh, during the creation, uh, you know, God is creating the world and uh, several times in just the first few statements of the Bible, God looks down on his creation and he says, it is good. He says, it is good. It is good. It is very good. And something that had never occurred to me before, before I read Richard, um, was that God is not making an aesthetic statement uh, when he says this. He's not like Bob Ross making a little painting and going like, oh, this is, those are some nice little trees that I made. And, oh, that's a pretty good looking deer and stuff. Um, but he's actually making a moral statement about the nature of the world. Um, and that really kind of, that really changed a lot of my perspective. And it was also something that I kind of suspected kind of intuitively. And I think that also comes from, from being gay, you know, when you, because when you're gay, you're kind of shook by these forces that are beyond your control. And if you have been taught to, to view your sort of natural instincts in a negative way as something sinful, you know, that's, that's going to create a conflict that you're going to live with for a lot of your life. But if you see the body as something good, as something that comes from God, something that is supporting us and uh, helping us through this world, then it kind of gives you a more positive view on life rather than uh, a pessimistic one. Um, I had another idea here. Oh, yeah, I wanted to talk about the idea of the natural man, um, which kind of exemplifies this idea as well. Um, because when we're young, we're sort of taught that the natural man is an enemy of God. And I understand this from a certain perspective, uh, because when we're young, we have to kind of learn in impulse control, right? We have to learn that we can't just act on every feeling that we have, um, so that's, that's useful on one sort of level of spiritual consciousness, but on a higher level of consciousness, it's, it's not really true at all, in my opinion, because like I said, I kind of believe that everything comes from God. The natural world is created from God. And I think everything kind of holds God's DNA in it. Everything is kind of like a mirror that really reflects God. And, and we can see that uh, if we have the right perspective. I'm, I'm a big fan of the poet uh, Walt Whitman. And I just think, man, if, when I read his poetry, like there's a guy who just, he found the divine in everything. It's like, oh, if I could just, if I could get there, if I could just see God in, in the leaves of grass and in my neighbors and in my dog and in nature, like that'd be really wonderful. And I have experienced that at some points in my life, but it's a matter of kind of holding on to that, that truth at all times. Uh, especially when you know the world is full of suffering and wickedness it's it's not always easy to to see that and i also had um a scripture to go along with this as well and i know your your listeners are uh, good christians so i'm sure they've got their bibles on them right now so if they would like to turn to psalms uh, 139 uh, verse 7 and read along with me uh, this is one of my favorite scriptures. And it goes, uh, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither, whither shall I flee from thy presence? 
If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yet, or yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. I just love that scripture. And I think it really kind of, uh, it exemplifies the kind of non-dualistic worldview that I'm trying to hold. Because it, in it, it's sort of saying that, you know, there's nowhere that you could really hide from God. Um, and, and, and not in like a threatening way, but in the sense that God is always there and God's spirit and God's love can always be found. Even if you make your bed in the, in the depths of hell, God will be there for you. And that's, that's a lot different from what we've, uh, we're traditionally taught. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of times an emphasis of, of straying from God. But when I look at that, that scripture, I think there's nowhere that we can really go uh, to stray from God. And when I look at the, the life that I've had, um, I thought I'd sort of, I was living my life, especially throughout my 20s, as something that was contradictory um, to the gospel and how I was supposed to be living. But now in hindsight, I can kind of see how all of those experiences were really kind of leading me to this place, to where I needed to be. Um, I see sort of like wandering through the desert is not necessarily an unfortunate side route that a lot of people find themselves on, but in a way, it's kind of an essential part of our spiritual journey. Sometimes in order to find God, you have to go into the depths of yourself. You have to wander in the desert for a little bit, and you have to worship false idols um, to gain a, a, a better perspective on things. And I, I, I feel like I understand now, too, like. Um, I understand kind of my my moral uh, foundation. When I was taught as a youth that I kind of betrayed, um, I have a better perspective now of why I was taught originally not to do certain things. But now I kind of, I know that because I've kind of gone through that and I did what I wasn't supposed to do. And now I'm like, oh, that's why we're not supposed to do. I think about that a lot with um, uh, pornography. I, I encountered pornography when I was young and I. I, I looked at pornography for most of my life, and nowadays I don't watch pornography that much, um, but not necessarily because I thought it's some great evil, but simply because, you know, pornography is just kind of dumb. It's this, it's kind of this frivolous thing that is an illusion that gives this idea of, of sex and intimacy and relationships that's not real. And I think once you've experienced uh, the deep intimacy and connectedness uh, with a partner, like there's, there's nothing that really compares to it. And it sort of just kind of brings us, brings us down when we look at porn and stuff. Um, but another thing I wanted to talk about kind of going along with this, and this also kind of comes from Richard Rohr is the idea that we often come to God, not by doing things right, uh, but rather doing things wrong which is a bit contrary to our thinking. Uh, and this sort of first hit me, I think I was listening to a podcast a few years ago, and they were talking about the story of the prodigal son. 
which is like one of Jesus's greatest hits, in my opinion. I think there's a reason why it's it's repeated so often in the Bible. Um, but one of the hosts on the podcast kind of put this idea out that maybe the prodigal son had no choice but to leave. Um, I think when we were when we're taught the story when we're young, we sort of think of the prodigal son as oh he it would have been better if he had just stayed home really and done what his father had said and followed all the rules and stuff. But if the prodigal son hadn't gone away, there wouldn't be any story. There wouldn't be any moral lesson. And maybe he had to go through that in order to come back and and gain that understanding of what true love and acceptance really feels like. I think the story is just as much about the father as it is the son in that. Um, So that kind of gave me a new context to look at my experiences too, where I was like, oh, I don't really have to necessarily look at these things that I've done as being incorrect, but maybe it's something that I have to go through. Like I just said about uh, wandering through the desert. Uh, I think the role of the, of the law, the rules that we follow uh, is meant to keep us safe. It's meant to provide us with protection, but it doesn't necessarily progress us along on our spiritual path. I think we get that, that mix, we get that mixed up quite a lot. Um, and I, and I use the law in kind of the broadest sense anything that's sort of like, you should do this, you should do that. Uh, Because the Bible is full of examples, I think, of people kind of doing the wrong thing and ending up where they uh, need to be. Uh, People have mentioned, scholars have looked at the Bible and they've said, you know, the, the Israelites, the Hebrews in the Old Testament they kind of do everything wrong. <laughs> it's kind of them consistently messing up, consistently going against the covenant that they have with God. But the the lesson we can take from that is that God maintains his side of the covenant no matter what. He maintains that relationship. And something that I learned recently about the word Israel is that it means those who struggle with God, those who wrestle with God. And I thought that was absolutely amazing. It's not those who have a perfect relationship with God, not those who have the strongest testimony, but those who wrestle with their belief and wrestle with their relationship with the divine. And this is God's, these are God's chosen people that are defined this way. And I think if the Bible provides them enough grace uh, where they can have that, they can have that struggle. And I think we can provide ourselves a little bit of grace and forgiveness as well as we're kind of all just sort of trying to figure things out uh, as we go. Um, I had some other examples, too, of like people kind of doing the wrong thing. You know, uh, God told Adam and Eve not to partake of the fruit. But of course, ultimately, they had to do that. Um, You've got the commandment that says thou shalt not kill. And then God orders Nephi to kill uh, Laban. (laughs) <laughs> and I think that um, what we can kind of take from these stories is that there's no limit to what God has to to get us where we need to go. You, you know what I mean? Like, he works in mysterious ways, I guess. And I think if God can't reach people uh, through the traditional means, through like the spiritual, he'll use the secular He'll use sin. It all just kind of falls under his umbrella of, of what he can do. And and yeah, I kind of look at my life as sort of like a lot of wrong decisions that have kind of led me where I need to be. 
Uh, and I even think about when I was young and I was in the church, I have a lot of great memories of young men's of hanging out with my friends and going on camping trips and stuff. And one of the things that I really appreciate about those times was the sense of community and friendship and brotherhood that I developed with those guys at the time um, that didn't really have so much to do with, you know, when we were reading our scriptures or when we were praying together or learning about the gospel, but kind of when we were sort of just goofing off and being young boys together. You know, I think there's a there's a really deep connectedness that I, I gained and I, I think about them a lot even to this day. I wonder how they're doing. And um that sort of goofing off when we were breaking the rules is kind of what brought us closer together. And sometimes I wonder if like maybe that's kind of the whole point of the community, you know, like church as a community. We don't necessarily have to all agree with the same things or be on the same path or be in the same place. But that sense of community and that feeling of we're all in this together, just like God who constant is always keeping his covenant promise with the Israelites. Um, that, that's really what matters, that we, we have that connectedness and that, that relationship with each other. Um, I also wrote down that uh, if we think about God's grace, um, God has to go against his own commandments in order to forgive his children in a way. He sort of lays down the rule and he says, don't do this, don't do that. But I think ultimately when God is forgiving us for those things, he's kind of saying, that's all right. <laughs> you know, I told you not to do these things because I want you to be safe. But ultimately, me maintaining my relationship with you is what matters. I think love and grace kind of trump the law at every turn. And I think uh, Christ modeled this as well. And I think this is something that we have to model for each other and for the rest of the world. And it doesn't really matter what kind of shape it that that takes. It doesn't matter if you identify as a Christian or a Buddhist or an atheist even. I think so long as you're modeling that, I think God is happy with you and God is glad that you're doing that. Um, yeah. Let me see. What else I got here? And I also wanted to point out as well, <laughs> that in case people get the wrong idea that I'm kind of saying like, everyone should just go out and send their hearts away <laughs> because I don't really need to say this because as Christians, we kind of recognize that we're always sinning. Uh, yeah. As Christians, we're sinners, right? So it's, it's not really a question of, for me, trying to do all that I can to make sure that I never sin because I don't see that as ultimately a possibility. Um, but how can I utilize my sin in a way where it's always working towards the good? You know, how can I, how can I take sin and I can make it useful, something good that I can learn from and sort of become a more loving, accepting person? Because uh, I think when we, we recognize that even our sin is working towards the greater good, we don't really have a whole lot to fear in life. I think we have to ultimately just kind of put our trust in God and understand that the universe is kind of taking care of itself. And we're just kind of an intimate part of that. We're not something that's removed in any way from God's grace. It's kind of like a, a river that's sort of always flowing. Uh, even when we're not aware of it, we're always just kind of drifting along uh, with the river. And let's see, what else? Uh, I wanted to 
also tie this back to um, uh, the idea of uh, physical intimacy. It's not a topic that I hear a whole lot on the podcast, but I, I think it's a little interesting that it doesn't get discussed as often because, you know, kind of the, the basic uh, Webster's dictionary definition of a homosexual is one who is sexually attracted to other men. Um, and I know a lot of people are navigating that uh, in their own ways. And I, I respect and honor everyone's decisions and, and, and what they think, how they believe they should live their life. But one of the surprising things that I've learned in my life is um, I've had a lot of physical experiences with other men. And in a strange way, my interactions have kind of helped develop my testimony and brought me closer to the divine. Um, because I found that physical intimacy can have a really transformative power because it's, it's this really vulnerable thing that we engage with, with another person. It's probably the most vulnerable thing that we do. And I think that vulnerability can open you up to a loving place of really intimate connection, uh, that almost kind of transcends the individual. It's like the two of you kind of cease to be yourselves and you enter into this beautiful thing that is is really quite transformative one of the things i love really about your podcast richard is i think i feel like you really exemplify the importance of vulnerability inviting people into this space to share their experiences and uh open up in a way where it's like you don't know what people are going to think about you you don't know if you're going to be judged you don't know how people are going to react, but that sort of putting yourself in that place and receiving acceptance and being mirrored by others in a way that says, I see you, I recognize you, I see the divine that's in you because I share it as well. I think that's like one of the most Christ-like things uh, that we can do with one another. Um, I feel like I've been talking a lot and I'm not used to just talking about myself. <laughs> Do you have any questions for me, Richard? I, I've got just some comments, but let's keep you talking. Um, I think you've got some more things you want to share and then I'll chime in. Sure. Let's see what else I got here. Uh, oh, let's see here. Let's, I got uh, Richard Rohr that I want to talk about. Um, he's got a couple of books that I'd recommend for everybody. Uh, there's the Universal Christ, um, which he, which is a great place to start if you're interested in uh, Christian mysticism or um, kind of more uh, contemplative thought. Uh, the main kind of theme of that book of the Universal Christ is that you know you've got Jesus Christ, you've got Jesus the man, who is the individual who lived you know in Jerusalem at the time and discovered that he was God, uh, but then you have the Christ which is the title that Jesus has. Christ isn't Jesus's last name, but it means enlightened one. It's kind of similar to the Buddha. And he talks about how the Christ is sort of this force that kind of has always existed in the universe and can be found everywhere all over the world. And yeah, it kind of goes back to what I was talking about uh, over like original goodness, where the Christ can be revealed uh, through our life experiences and through studying the scriptures and um, uh, approaching life with that sense of vulnerability, 
we kind of discover the divine uh, that's in all things. Um, so I'd recommend that book a lot. He also has another book called Falling Upward, the two halves, the, I think the two spiritual halves of life, where he kind of breaks down where when we're young and we're um, coming into the world and we are learning things like the law and we're developing our sense of identity and, and we're kind of learning how to function in the world. And then he talks about the second half of life, which is a kind of unlearning of a lot of the things that we learned in the first half of life, which allows us to get to a more spiritual place where we can um, more embody uh, the Christ. Because some of these things that we're asked to do are kind of contradictory. And I think that's where a lot of this, the stress and the tension comes from. If we're so tied to the idea of the law and that we are saved by our own works and by our own moral behavior and our own moral perfection, that makes it really hard for us to get to a place of, of, of loving each other and forgiving each other and, and, and of grace. Because ultimately, love and grace, I think, has to trump all of those things. Um, and it can be a little difficult to get into that, that part of life if we're so occupied with our own individual salvation, in a way. I think when we, when we reach those higher levels of spiritual consciousness, it stops being about us and it starts being about other people, how we can serve other people. And we're not really so much concerned about our own, our own moral behavior. I, don't, I think Christ kind of modeled this as well. I don't think he was, he didn't seem to have much of a problem with, with sin. Um, he really, and he didn't seem to view the world in terms of worthy people and unworthy people, you know, these people over here to be rewarded, those people to be damned. But I think he saw the world as kind of a place of, of suffering, uh, that we are all equally suffering and that we're all need of healing and of forgiveness. And I think that's what we need to model for the rest of the world. And we've got to, I think we've got to get over this sort of sense of this us versus them. Um, and this idea that we're always measuring each other like, oh, I think, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good, but I think, and I think I'm doing better than, than Sam over there, but Sam is definitely more spiritual than, than Jim or something. <laughs> it just kind of becomes pointless after a while. We have to, we have to understand that, uh, that grace is really what gets us there. Um, it offends our ego, I think, uh, because it's not really about us anymore at that point. It's about God and what God does for us. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> what else have I got here? How are we doing on time, Richard? Good. Good. Uh, let me see. What else can I talk about? So recently, I've been trying to find uh, a kind of spiritual community. Um, I, I would really like to go to find like a church that I could join, but it's it's kind of difficult for me. I'm kind of in this transitionary point um, of my life where I don't always connect with people in a Christian setting because I'm still very much of that kind of secular world, and I'm trying to in a breakout with that and find a community that I relate to. Um, 
I think I'm sometimes a little bit too picky. Uh, there's a there's a church up in Salt Lake called the Capitalist Church. I've been to a, a couple of their events that are pretty nice, and I found it's really useful to go out and explore other uh, faith organizations and other traditions. I think even like um, uh, other religions like Buddhism and um, Taoism and Hinduism and Judaism. I found that when I discuss when I study those other belief systems, it only kind of increases my own understanding of the gospel. I think they're in a lot of ways all just kind trying to teach the same thing, but they use different language and different stories and different metaphors um, to communicate the same essential truth. Um, so I'd encourage people to do that as well to kind of look into uh, other spiritual paths to kind of get a bet not not to um not to in any way try to uh diminish their lds faith but really i think it'll help you understand your lds faith um a lot better uh and i let me see here sorry i had this big long outline and i thought oh i'll have lots to talk about but now i find myself kind of lost in my own train of thoughts. Well, let me give you a break then. And I know you've got, I think you've got a poem you want to end with, but you know, listeners, every podcast is different. And this is a really unique podcast with a really bright, thoughtful um, man, Brian. I um, here's some of the thoughts I share wrote down as you were talking is this sort of, phase you went through in your late teens, I think you're very self-aware of what was going on there and uh, respect for that, this sort of lashing out, which probably came from a position of pain and anger. I've always felt lashing out and anger is a secondary emotion, Um, but you're also very self-aware that the behavior you chose was dualistic in the way it was just opposite of what the church taught. And that was pretty self-reflective and thoughtful of you. And recognize that at some point I've got to sort of find my own way forward because that world is just living the opposite world. And um, you were not finding integrity in that, that I sense you want to find integrity. So then the next word I wrote down was humility to sort of, you know, say, okay, I'm I'm not going to be LDS again, but I'm recognizing this path, you know, behavior just completely opposite in a dualistic way, a lifestyle. So I thought that was really thoughtful. And this whole podcast coming out as Christian is, I'm assuming if your 18-year-old self could hear your 34-year-old self right now, your 18-year-old self would be sort of stunned. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I love just the humility of being willing to, I'm not saying backtrack or renege, but there's a lot of grace in your story towards yourself and just I want to be thoughtful enough and intentional enough here to I'm still pretty young to chart my way in a way that's healthy for me long term and I'm going to reopen the story I think you used that term to Christianity and and there's some pain there probably doing that because I assume there's some pain of being gay and LDS in that journey and so that's really very, very thoughtful. And um, I love the things you've turned to. Listeners, my wife taught me about the compass. The compass is, think of this, and she got it from S. Michael Wilcox, an LDS Institute teacher, but 
she talks about a compass. She's given it to all of her kids. It's, it's this, it's this compass that has a fixed foot and then a long foot that can reach out. And it's not like it's an old fashioned compass. So if you can visualize that, her point is at least for me being LDS and listening to Brian, I can keep my fixed foot as an active Latter-day Saint, but then I can extend my other foot of my compass way out there and listen to somebody like Brian and be open to what I can learn from him. And not everything Brian said resonated 100% with me, but there were some things that were extremely insightful and very thoughtful. And so that's just the way I process, you know, there's some people that want to keep their second foot of their compass right next to their first foot of their compass. And maybe their personality is wired that way. And, and that feels safer to them, but there's others. And I'm sort of in that camp that wants to, and then when I'd extend my second foot of my compass, I come to a lot of the same conclusions, Brian, I feel love for everybody. I see a God who loves everybody. I see a God full of grace and, and wanting to get all of his children back. I still believe in the law. Um, and the importance of you know doing your best, and I think Brian sort of does too, because he wants to keep people safe. But I do believe in this God that Brian's describing. I liked your line: "Pornography is dumb." That was pretty funny, actually. <laughs> it it's just kind of dumb. <laughs> you have a vo- way of vocabulary, Brian. So you know, respect for being honest, and that's been part of your journey. And I think this is part of just um, the maturity. You're sort of self-reflecting enough and saying, you know, that phase of my life needs to come to an end and I can, it's not going to help me long-term. And um, then I wrote yeah. down theology and divinity school. I thought if I was your, you have, you know, this gift of, of, you know, I think of you being in, I'm not saying you should go do this, but you have a gift of theology and you have a very bright, thoughtful mind and I know you're not in a career track right now that takes you down that road, but I don't think this is the only time you're going to talk publicly about Christianity and about Richard Rohr and a loving God. I think this is part of your future. Um, And so that may be, you know, I just, I think this is part of your future. I, I do believe we have spiritual gifts and you have incredible spiritual gifts in this space and that God created you intentionally and i have to think he's smiling for the work you've done to get to the place you are and and has a future for you to continue to bring hope and healing to others i think of the friends you talked with about young men's and i don't know if you're connected with any of them um but i thought how you know if they listen to this podcast it probably put a smile on their face to hear you and how much those friendships meant way back then and i love your vision of community I love Richard Rohr's book. I've read that book, I'm Falling Upward. It really helped me in my, I'm 60, so it helped me to kind of understand some of the things I was feeding as a Latter-day Saint and sort of um, setting aside sort of maybe my, I don't want to say black and white, sounds dismissive of others, but just I wanted to better understand the whole human family and I need to set aside some past assumptions and and do better. and And instead of Looking at that as a negative, I love where he talked about falling upwards in a positive sense. So those are some of the things, listeners, that I thought were very helpful. Um, I think of, and I'm going to get you talking again. I do, 
you know, I used to kind of think, I'll work out my salvation, you work out yours, we're in different silos. It's kind of the same vocabulary, Brian, you were using. And um, now I think of it as different than that. I think we're all kind of helping each other and we need each other. And it's not this individual Puritan alone kind of hard road. We need each other. And I love this quote by Thomas Merton. I think he's a Catholic priest. Our job is to love one another without stopping to inquire whether or not they're worthy. That is not our business. And in fact, it's nobody's business. What we're all asked to do is love. And love itself will render both ourselves and our neighbors worthy. So I love that quote. And I think it's consistent with the things you're suggesting. Uh, But it is just remarkable if we just stop and think, you know, 16 years ago, where were you? And 10 years ago, where were you? And that you were, you know, and where you are now. um, It's really remarkable. It's a credit to you. Um, This is very much on your own. I don't think, you know, you're responding to cultural pressure to do this or family pressure. I think this is you just having enough, just doing this on your own. And I think it's a really remarkable story of deconstruction, reconstruction, and being authentic to who you are and what works for you. Yeah. Thanks, Richard. Yeah. I I love Thomas Merton as well. It's a great (laughs) quote. And I love that phrase that you just used, uh, reconstruction. I feel like that's, that's kind of where I'm kind of at in my life. Um, when I was in school, I read a lot of, uh, postmodern stuff, uh, as part of my English courses and the word of all English majors at that time was deconstruction. It was, it was deconstructing the world kind of taking apart in, uh, social institutions like religion, like government, like gender and stuff like that. And I've come to learn that that was a really important part of my development as a youth to go through that deconstruction phase. Um, but if you spend your whole life just kind of deconstructing everything, you're kind of left with nothing to stand on. Interesting. It's like you kind of have to go through that reconstruction phase where it's like, okay, I've evaluated this thing that I've gone through, but now I need to create something new. I need to create something meaningful um, so that I have something to hold on to. And yeah, that's kind of, I feel like where I'm at in my life, that that reconstruction. Um, and I also appreciate what you said about uh, anger being a secondary emotion. Um, you know, speaking as someone who's kind of a bit of an outsider, I recognize a lot of the pain that, you know, LGBT people feel, especially us ex-LDS, former LDS gay people go to. And I, and I see it in a lot of my friends. Uh, and they hold on to a lot of anger and resentment towards the church. And that can't be... It can feel good to be on the res- the reciprocal side of that, to be an LDS member and, and hear people talk about your faith in such a way. Um, but I hope that people will understand that that anger comes from a place of 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 of, of damage, uh, of pain. And um, I feel bad for uh, a lot of those folks. And I, I I try to to tell folks, you know, I think forgiveness is a really important thing. Um, not just for the person that you're forgiving, but it has tremendous healing power uh, for ourselves as well. I feel like I've found, you know, people have done me wrong. People have said things to me that, you know, made me hurt a lot. And I've, I've kind of found that forgiveness is really the only real solution um, to overcome that pain. 
and that's something that I'm I continue to work with, and I hope that we'll all work with is just try to forgive each other. Um, and I also like what you said about, uh, you know, we kind of have this idea that we all have this individual salvation. Um, but the more I study the scriptures and the more I look at life, I see the, the, the atonement is a kind of group thing. It's, it's not just an individual thing, but I think Christ atoned for everyone's sins. Uh, I like to say, if you want to understand atonement, you just look at the word at one meant, uh, which means there's no really separate individuals, but we're all kind of one thing. And that's the body of Christ. And I think if we're going to make it to the pearly gates, if we're all going to make it to paradise, I think we have to kind of all get there as a group. Um, I see the example of Christ as someone who is not satisfied with his own celestial glory, but he descended um, to redeem the world. And we're supposed to follow his example. In a lot of ways, I think it, it's, it's not really heaven unless we're all going there. <laughs> because if we're still separated from each other, if we're still dividing ourselves up, have we really atoned? Are we really at one? Wow. Um, so yeah, that's, that was a really good thought that you had from, from Thomas Merton. And if we're, I've also got a little, a little poem that I wanted to end with, if this is a good time or yeah. if you want to keep going. I want your poem to be the last thing. And let me just, okay. one more comment. Um, I love what you said about the prodigal son. I've, I've certainly, yeah, I invite everybody to follow commandments and the law and church teachings. I think my listeners know I'm pretty clear on that, but I agree with your point that we're never asked to be perfect and sin is part of the mortal experience. And I think one of the tests of characters is how we respond to that in ourselves and others. And, you know, I've always imagined now I'm back with the prodigal son um, as he's walking, you know, I think it's beautiful the way that's set up in the daylight. So the father runs to the son, he's stunned. I've always thought that father represents our heavenly father, the savior, but I've, Imagine the what I sense is a non-shaming, what did you learn conversation as they walked back? Because everything I read in Luke is there's no shame. It's just the father unconditionally, non-transactionally loved him and signified that by putting a coat on him and a ring on a finger and said he comes back as a son, even when the son thought he'd come back as a servant. But then I want to read, and it's not in the scriptures, Brian, is the conversation. And I have to think it goes with something like this. Tell me what you learned. Yeah, and absolutely. I think that's, that's, that's the sort of value of those experiences in a way. Um, and I think God is someone who allows us to have those experiences because uh, he knows it's worthwhile for us. Exactly. And, and not only that, but I also think God wants us to have a good time in a way. <laughs> I do too. I, you quoted Joseph I a, Smith. <laughs> I heard a Jewish uh, scholar once say that um, God probably let Adam and Eve partake of the fruit and leave the garden just so that something would happen. <laughs> <laughs> because otherwise they would have all just could have been sitting there in this strange kind of bliss where, you know, there would there be no, nothing, nothing would ever happen. It would just, everything would be perfect all the time and there would be no conflict. But I think part of the human experience is that conflict 
um, and getting into that trouble and learning lessons as a result of it. And that's kind of, uh, in some ways, the spice of life, I feel like. Uh, as an English major, I like to kind of look at my life as this kind of grand story, um, a novel, I guess. And all great stories have conflict in them, right? Like if you're, if you're reading like Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings or something, if, if it was a story of them just always doing everything right and never doing anything wrong, like that would be kind of a dull story. <laughs> but I think, I think God likes to like, a, likes us to go on those kind of adventures. Um, uh, but he's always kind of there with us uh, along the way. Uh, like, like the prodigal son father, he's just kind of waiting us to, to return and yeah, ask us, so what did you, what did you learn? And so I, I really like that. I agree with your point that you've mentioned several times that I think God is always with us. I don't think that relationship's earned. I think it's just there because we're their spirit children. And um, sometimes we don't think we should feel worthy of their love or involvement in our lives. But I, I agree. That's been a theme. I think you've said a couple of times that that relationship is there. It's not transactional. And mm-hmm. I just believe as a parent, I want to have a relationship with every one of my kids regardless of what road they're walking or what's going on in their lives, I want to be in their lives. And that's not an earned thing. It's just, I want to be there for them. So I, I really think that's important. And I deeply agree with that. I think it's consistent with LDS doctrine, even though culturally we sometimes kind of infer that's earned. I think it's just there because we're their children. I think that, and I love your thoughts earlier about just feelings and how there shouldn't be shame and how we're created. And um, how we feel and who we are. Um, there shouldn't be shame. And even back to your original story of just internalized homophobia, just how you felt that was how you, how, that's how you're created. And the way society talked about people like you created a lot of pain, unnecessary pain. And I think that the God I believe, and I, you said something really interesting. I'm thinking back to all these things you said now, that God's DNA is in everything. Um, And so I have to think that straight people and queer people need to look at themselves and say, I'm created as God intended me. There should be no shame for the feelings I have or who I am. And I think that puts everybody on the same moral footing and increases the chance they can believe God loves them and perhaps makes better decisions in their lives. So I hope that's consistent. I don't want to make this my story. I want to share things that I think are consistent. But share any thoughts and end with your poem. Okay. yeah, kind of what you were. I liked what you said about your relationship with your with your kids and how you want to model that with them as well. And you know, I, I've come to the same conclusion, and a lot of that has because I have really great parents. To be honest, and I didn't come to that conclusion from reading a bunch of books and listening to podcasts and stuff. But like I said earlier, they've really modeled that for me um, because their kids and my grandparents' grandkids didn't turn out quite like what they expected. Um, we're not this idyllic little picture perfect Mormon family that <laughs> some folks would like, but we've maintained our relationship with each other at all costs. And I think that's, that's, cool. that's really the most valuable thing. And I, I hope that I'll be able to model that for my kids someday that, you know, whatever path, whatever journey they go on, I'll always sort of be that, that rock. That, that my parents have been for me. Um, I think that's more important uh, than anything else. And, and I, I liked what you said about 
you know, queer and straight people sort of seeing themselves as kind of equals. I think we kind of, in our lives, we kind of put all these identifiers on ourselves, you know, like gay, single, male, Brian and stuff. But I'm kind of thinking more and more lately that the only real identifier that matters in life is that we're all children of God. Um, we're all products of this divine uh, being and we're all equally deserving of respect. Wow. And if we could just be reminded of that, you know, <laughs> when we're so caught up with, you know, those dang Democrats, you know, or <laughs> those dang Republicans, we could just remember that we're all children of the same a sacred family. I think we could change a lot in the world. Wow. It's what I try to emulate every day. I'm still got a lot to work on. That's for sure. But yeah, if, if it's time, I'll, I'll end with my little poem. Uh, this, this poem is called wild geese uh, by Mary Oliver. She's one of my favorites and it's one of my favorite poems. Uh, here it goes. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. That's great. Thanks, Richard. Thank you, Brian. Um, I love your tribute to your parents as they just loved you and your grandparents as you were, you know, leaving the church and and this just non-transactional love that you seem to be the recipient on that perhaps, and maybe you inferred this has helped you make your way forward. Um, you're a uniquely gifted um, speaker, really thoughtful. I kind of want to just imagine where you're going to be in 10 years from now as you continue to learn and grow and share your thoughts, you're going to help and bless a lot of people. You're a peacemaker, a bridge builder, but you kind of see the human family at the 50,000 foot level um, as the same family. So I think you have really clear understanding and help me and our listeners to see, I think, how God sees us and sees us as the same human family. And even your thought about the atonement at one man and heaven not being, you know, you you would think our heavenly parents would want all of their children back that want to get back and do everything to bring us together as one family and that one month. So keep being you, keep learning and growing. Um, but you have a unique life ahead of you and you're not 64 sort of, I just kind of got to this place and now what do I do with it? You're 34. Um, that's older than 18, but you've got your whole life ahead of you. And so it'll be interesting just to see the good that you do and the hope and healing and bridge building that you've done in this podcast. And I'm sure with lots of conversations and will continue to do in your life in a way that works for you. So anyway, listeners, um, 
Thank you for joining us, Brian Pedersen and Richard Osler, signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Mm-hmm.